We are in uh, the Gospel of James. James, uh, we're starting chapter two today. Uh, and James is going to talk about this idea of partiality or, or, or really discrimination uh, and what it means for us in the church or what it meant for the church in his day. And uh, we're gonna really dig into that. It ties into some of what we talked about with our biblical justice series, but it also ties into a whole lot of other things. And so as usual, I, I pray that James is going to like put that mirror up that we talked about last week uh, to show us things about ourselves that we might not know. Um, but all of it is for the blessing of helping us to be more like who we really are in Christ. So let's, if you're able, stand uh, for the reading of God's word. This is uh, James chapter two, verses one through 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in the good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man and are not the rich, the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, then you are committing sin and are convicted by the law's transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for your, your, your intense care for us. Intense care that was shown to us through the incarnation of our Lord Jesus who came and healed us, saved us from the power of sin and death by his death on the cross. And we thank you that you are even now working to, to, to free us from the power of sins that still affect us in this life so that we can grow into the beauty of the character of Jesus, that is such a blessing for us. And so I pray, Lord, that you would show us uh, in and through these verses, just our security in you, our security in Christ, uh, but also that you love us so much that you will not let us forget about you and forget about who we really are so that we can so act and so think and so do according to the family likeness so that we might be blessed, you might be glorified, and we might be a blessing to the world. So Lord, we pray First of all, that you would show us the beauty of Jesus in all of these things. 
through your word today. And we pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you promise, Lord, to be beautifying your afflicted ones, and that's us. So be with us, Lord. Give us wisdom. Illuminate us to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Does anybody, anybody remember the Twilight Zone? Yeah, I'm about to totally date myself right now, I think. You guys, Twilight Zone? Maybe old YouTubes, yeah? You, you hip, yeah? So there's this one Twilight Zone. I loved, I used to watch it when I was a little kid, right? Because when you were like five or six, that stuff would really give you nightmares. Uh, so I would watch it. And there was this one episode in particular where uh, it, was a, it was a scene in a hospital. There were, and it, the, ever, the room was dark. The lights were down because uh, they were trying to keep this one woman calm, this woman whose head is wrapped in bandages because of, ostensibly because of an extensive facial reconstruction that she'd undergone to correct, as the story goes along, this hideous birth defect that had disfigured her face. Y'all know where I'm going with this, right? Yeah. Um, and so finally we get to the, cl- the climactic scene where the medical team is there and they're meeting her and they're gonna see if the surgery worked. They're pulling the bandages off and the lights are still dark. They finally pull the last mask off and you see from the back, the medical team, they jump back and they gasp. Oh, she's hideous. Nothing changed. Oh, it's awful. She's so ugly. And then the camera shifts and you see her face and she's beautiful. And in that moment of confusion where you're trying to figure out what's going on, she begins to freak out and all of a sudden the doctors say, turn the lights on and they turn the lights on and then finally see the faces of the medical team for the first time and they're all horribly disfigured. They have grotesque pig-like faces, all of them the same and you realize the switch, right? You see the switch. Uh, And as the woman like runs off in panic and tears and in horror through the hospital, you see screens of the great pig people Fuhrer on this on the TV, uh, talking about how you know they are all to conform to one one race, to conform to one people, to conform to one being, and it becomes clear that it's really a metaphor for internal moral beauty of character. And the moral of the story is that these people have are so hideous that what they see as beautiful is truly ugly, and what they see as ugly is truly beautiful. And at the end, the very end, she's put with another man who's, you know, fantastically handsome, right? And they're both talking about, you know, why, why do we have to be so grotesque? And they're sad, they send them off to basically the leper village off in the country where they can be with other people who are so horribly grotesque, and they believe it. (laughs) But really, the man says to her in the midst of it, you'll be amazed at how quickly you come to realize that you're loved and that you are truly beautiful. So why am I telling you that story, right? I think that's kind of the same thing that James is really bringing out in this story, that we, uh, the church, can become confused in the same way. The world that we live in and the vast majority of people in it, because of the way sin affects us, the way this sin affects our fallen heart and the way that sin causes us 
uh, to latch on to things that are not beautiful but, but truly think that they are, uh, because the way that sin has so deformed the world and the human experience around us, we, the church, even Christians who live uh, in the midst of that, the gravitational pull of that is so tremendous that we can get really confused too about what is truly beautiful and what is not. Who are the beautiful people and who are really the beautiful people? Who are the beautiful people in the world's eyes versus who are the beautiful people in God's eyes? And I think that's what James is really trying to bring out in that. That James is saying, this, here's this local body of believers and by favoring what the world favors, and in doing so, treating poorly those whom God favors, discriminating people based on their appearances uh, rather than from, based on their hearts, that this is the opposite of mercy, and ultimately it's out of character for those who follow Jesus. And so God, in his mercy, reminds us of who we really are so that we might act and think according to who we really are and find the freedom in that. And so the big idea is that when we get confused about what is truly beautiful, God reminds us of who we really are. Whenever we get confused about what is truly beautiful, God reminds us who we really are. So let's look at that one part at a time. First, when we get confused. You guys ever been to one of those super high dollar restaurants or clubs where they've got like all the Lamborghinis and the Maseratis and the Mercedes 500s all parked up out front, you know? And there's like, there's the big VIP line. There's all the regular people like lined around the block. But then there's, you know, every once in a while you see the, the super famous, the rich and famous and the beautiful will come right up and get right in. Why do they do that, right? Why do, why do clubs do that? Why do restaurants do that? They do that because they want everyone to know that they are an elite establishment, that they are better than everybody else, and that they are frequented by and um, uh, they are frequented by and their clientele are among the, the, the rich and the famous and the powerful and the wealthy and the beautiful. And they do that, why? Because they count on the fact that that will make everybody else want to get in. Right? I mean, remember when we were, in, when we were playing in bands, that was, we would be in the VIP, we would be able to get in the VIP line all the time. It made you feel super special, right? You would just kind of walk in all, and you just kind of walk in, when, you don't even pay attention to the little people, you know, you just kind of walk on in like you're, you're all that. It makes you feel super powerful. And, and the restaurants, they count on the fact that everybody's going to Everybody's going to be drawn to that. They're going to see that as so valuable and desirable to be respected and honored and lauded like that, that they're going to want the same thing. But what if churches did that? What if we, what if we churches did What if we did that? What if you rolled up on a, come around a corner on Date Street and we got like special valet parking, we got all the, we got all the Maseratis and the BM, if we actually had any of those cars, right? <laughs> the Maseratis, and the, we, got the, uh, we got the Kia VXL out front, right? We got the, yeah, what's up? We got the, uh, we got the Camry, the Camry SV, whatever. We got the Maserati, we got the Lamborghini, the Mercedes XL. And then there's a line of like all the regular people around the door and then the really cool people are coming in first. What if churches did that? What if churches did that? What if... What would that, not only what would that say to the world, but really, 
what would it say about, what would that say about the church? And it's not just that, that they favor the rich. It's not just that they diminish the poor. It's really, it's, it's the motivation. It's why are they doing that? I think that's the important part that James is really bringing out. Why? Why would they do that? Which is kind of what this church is doing, right? And James, as we go through the book, we're going to see this big principle coming out over and over again. James is the master of presenting to us, of presenting the truth that whatever you do typically kind of exposes what you really believe. And in this case, what you really believe to be true and, or valuable or admirable, what you, what you, what you hope to attain. Uh, and so here in the book, what, what in this passage, the word partiality, here's what he's getting at. The word partiality is a word that they made up. The New Testament authors kind of made up to transliterate an old Hebrew word that it really literally means to receive the face. And what that means is it means to it means to it means to make it means to make judgments about people according to their external appearances. Uh, and our and and then to act according to our preconceived ideas and prejudices of what those people must be or be like or who they are. Uh, and it's plural. The word partiality is plural, so it means that there can be all kinds of ways that this might play out. However, James gives us a specific example, and that is uh, the example of favoring those who appear to be wealthy and powerful in the world in a worldly sense, while at the same time um, diminishing uh, or disregarding the poor or those who appear to be poor in a worldly sense. And what he's getting at really kind of de depends on what, what this, what's happening in this scene, right? And there's a debate about it. Some people, a lot of people have said this is a church service and that people are coming into the church service and the people in the church, the ushers out back are being like, you know, the, the, there's the, 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 we got the ushers, the greeters in the back. We have the bouncer in the VIP line. We're parking your Mercedes out front and then we're escorting you up to the front row and saying, oh, here, please come and sit up front. And the poor people were like telling them to stand in the back. And if that's true, what is that? What was that saying about the church? It's saying what? It's betraying what they're doing is betraying what they really believe to be valuable. And so it betrays who the people in that church really see as who are the beautiful people, who are truly valuable in God's eyes, who are truly worthwhile. And not only that, it kinda, it kinda like brings out like what we really want in life. We wanna really be like that. Not that we don't value the kingdom of God, but it kind of brings out the reality that we might value the kingdom of man a little bit more than we value the kingdom of God, or maybe a lot more. However, <clears throat> there's another possibility. The other possibility, a lot of people think this is a, a Christian court, like Paul talks about, you know, in Corinthians about, about judging, you know, one another or you know, the church making decisions or judgments um, and helping people mediate between conflicts that they're having. And if that's true, 
then what it's saying is that what it's saying is that they are um, they all had prejudices against the poor that are like coming out. See, in the, in the Talmud and in the, in, the, in the law of the day that was carried into the, in, even into the early church, uh, if two Christians came before the, uh, uh, the court of, the, of, of Christians for judgment, you have the rich person was obligated to give the, the poor person's clothing to wear so that they would look the same. And they weren't allowed to make them appear. They, if one stood, the other had to stand. If one sat, the other had to sat. They, had, they were required to do everything they could to like uphold and bring these people before the, before the court as equals. Why? To protect the poor person from all the prejudices and all the beliefs that people had about poor people, right? Well, why, and why he is poor, why he was in that position, why he was powerless, why he, uh, you know, it, because he's lazy or because he's shifty or because he has poor character or because he is basically inferior in some way, shape, or form, which would then sway the decision of the court. And so what, what they're doing is by failing to protect or fa by failing to examine their own prejudices against that poor person and failing to give him an opportunity of equal justice, they are, um, they are diminishing the poor in that way. They are not taking care to see that the poor man receives mishpat, that word that we talked about from the biblical justice series, seeing that everyone had equality under the law. And so either way, whichever scene it is, and it could be either scene, and because James says that there are various ways that this can play out, where we judge people based on their external appearance and our preconceived ideas or prejudices about what those people are like, whether they're true or not. Uh, and there could be, it could be economic levels, it could be how somebody's dressed, it could be the color of skin, it could be anything. When we do that in any way or any venue, James says that we become judges with evil thoughts. You know, and here, here's kind of the bummer. The sad thing is, the whole church is parking the Maseratis out front. I wish I could say that was not a thing. That's actually a thing. There are churches like that. There's actually churches in San Diego County like that. Um, and that's, a, I mean, that should make us really sad. But for us, you know, it, it's kind of, it's something to think about. Whenever we, whenever we find ourselves kind of valuing the things of the world unintentionally by what we like, you know, what we fawn over, <laughs> um, it's kind of a wake-up call. What do we truly value? Do we value the kingdom of God and what God sees as valuable, or do we value what the world sees as valuable? And when we get in that spot, God, in his mercy, is not going to let us stay there because if we value what the world sees as valuable, which is fading away, that will only bring sadness, and God wants better for us, right? Uh, he wants us to understand who we are, and who we are is actually quite surprising, right? The world has one idea of who the beautiful people are, but the Bible has a very different idea of who the beautiful people are and what they look like. So let's look at the second part. What is truly beautiful? I am um, 
kind of fascinated by that whole idea of like of art restoration. I don't know if you've ever seen that where oftentimes like in the back in the day, because canvases were rare or expensive, there might have been a, an, a masterpiece of artwork, but like a lesser artist got a hold of it and painted some crap, cruddy painting on top of the, of the beautiful painting. Uh, and then it, you know, gets deteriorates and comes through the ages and, you know, you, you see this canvas and it just, it just looks like a, you know, like a beat down canvas with a bunch of dirt and mud and, and grime on it. And these, but these artists, they discover that there's something valuable underneath. And as you watch the process, they rinse the painting with special chemicals and scrape very carefully. And then they're able to like restore the vibrancy of the colors that are buried underneath all that grime. And by the end of it, they come out when there's this beautiful painting that they brought out from underneath the grime and the dirt of of the canvas. We saw one of these things. We went to Mission San Juan Capistrano and there's this massive, like 20 foot tall picture of the crucifixion that was once buried under this awful artwork and they discovered this thing and were able to bring it back and restore this 16th century painting to to its former state of beauty, right? Well, God is doing kind of the same thing to us, isn't he? Every, uh, every time, I, when I, whenever I preach, right, I usually, my little thing is to say, you know, God give us minds to understand, because that's important, but we don't want it to stop there, and so I say, and give us hearts to obey, to believe that God's word is good and true, and believe it in a way that we act on it, uh, but then I bring it right back to where, you know, where, where it belongs. The only reason we're able to do that is because God in Psalm 149 has made this awesome promise to us that he is, be- is going to beautify his afflicted ones. Meaning that by his spirit, he is going to recreate us. He is recreating us uh, in the beauty of our character to be more like Jesus a little bit at a time, right? Uh, so listen what James listen what James says. He kind of says it a little bit between the lines, but he says it nonetheless. He starts out, you know, this whole admonition against the church by giving this special title to Jesus. He calls him the Lord of Glory, and most commentators think that he throws that out there right up front to just remind everybody, like who Jesus is and where it is that we're heading, that there is a true glory that far surpasses anything of this world. And that's where we're headed. That's, who we truly be- that's where we truly belong. And so James is kind of echoing the words of the apostle John, where John says that we don't even know what we're going to be. That's when Jesus returns, we're gonna be so different than we are now that we don't even know what that is. But what we do know is that we are going to be like Jesus. And what we can know is that 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 means is we are going to be completely restored in our character to be um, in holiness, in righteousness, in knowledge, to be like Jesus in in our abilities uh, to love and to look like him in his character, to be beautiful on the inside. Uh, And then he says, he says, don't you know that God that you're like, you know, you're like sucking up to all the rich people that come into the church. Don't you know that God, he says, has chosen the poor to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom? 
What is he saying? He's not saying that there aren't any wealthy Christians. I mean, we know that there are. There were, for a fact. Paul was only able to write his letters because of wealthy patrons who were Christians who put him up in their homes and paid, uh, you know, paid for him and for his missions. Um, However, Paul says in Corinthians that there are not many, not many of you are wise, not many of you are rich, because providentially, providentially God uh, has chosen the poor to receive salvation and to receive faith. Um, And so God has chosen to beautify really the lowly and the foolish things of the world. And that's us, in case you're wondering, right? That's, That's all of us. But the thing is, it is, it's not a beauty that's on display right now. It's not anything that we really see. It's a hidden beauty. Uh, it's a hidden wealth. It's a hidden power. The world doesn't see it. In fact, the world can't see it because what the world thinks and sees as good and true and beautiful is so, it's so opposite of it that they can't see it. But the truth is that Paul says that we, by the Spirit, are even now being recreated into the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We're being recreated in that internal beauty into the likeness of Jesus. Uh, In the gospel reading that I read today, man, I love that passage. Paul says that in the world we're treated as imposters and yet we are true. Our religion, what we believe about God is true. And we are unknown by the world and yet well-known. What he means by that is that the world doesn't know us, but God does. Man, that's important. There's another, another part in a, another letter where um, I think it's Paul, he's saying something that, you know, now that you know God, or actually rather, now that God knows you. And he's saying, that's what's the important thing. God knows you. So even though the world doesn't know us, the world doesn't recognize us, God recognizes us and knows us for who we are. And he says that we are always rejoicing as poor, yet many many rich, as having nothing in a worldly sense, yet possessing everything. That we are slated to be co-heirs of the new creation with Jesus. Uh, But for now, our life, Paul says, is hidden in Christ with God. Uh, And Paul says it's waiting to be revealed that the whole creation is groaning and waiting as the, to, as waiting for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed as we truly are, not, uh, not in an outward beauty that the Bible consistently says is like flowers and grass that fade away and diminish, but in an internal beauty uh, that lasts forever. You know, it, C.S. Lewis summed it up when he talks about Never have you ever met anybody who's really mortal or ordinary or normal. But everybody we meet is destined to either be a creature so hideous that it comes out of us, it would be like coming out of a nightmare, or, in speaking of the saints and the church, a being who will be so fantastically beautiful that if you saw us now, you if we saw our future selves now, we would be tempted to fall down in worship. Now, that's not to blow ourselves up, right? That's not to say, look how beautiful we are. I mean, that, what that is saying is, and what God is trying to say is, this is what I'm 
giving you. You know, this is what Jesus accomplished for us. Even from before the foundation of the world, before God created space and time and matter, he has chosen you to give you this gift, to give us the spirit, to bring us and grow us in more and more the beauty of Jesus and to finally, on the last day, to reveal our true state, who we really are. And that's what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. And the transformation is already underway. I want to think, think about, I want to imagine, like, imagine, like, if you got tickets to the Academy Awards. You'd be, you know, probably most of us be pretty stoked, right? You'd be pretty excited about that. It would be a big deal. And don't try, don't lie and say it wouldn't be. Like, right, if Beyonce walked in here right now, half y'all would just lose your minds, right? So imagine, like, if you were to, if you were to walk in, if we were able to come in the red carpet and, like, experience all of that glory, earthly glory, and be in that Academy Awards ceremony, you'd be like, that'd be an experience of a lifetime. It'd be all over your social media page, right? You'd be all about it. Now, I want you to compare that with being invited into the assembly of the angels and saints in the heavenly reality of the new creation in the presence of God, worshiping him forever, full and powered by his spirit in new spiritual bodies and overwhelmed with the joy of his being in his presence. That's what we have. Well, we can't see it. We can't see it. And the world doesn't see it. So we don't get any credit for it. Uh, we have to hold on to that by faith. And the Spirit gives us the power to hold on to that by faith. One of my favorite stories is about two missionaries, missionary couple. They're coming home, coming back to New York City on a big steamer back in the day in the 50s, and they, they come down the gangplank, and there's some, you know, the, the flash celebrity movie star of the day also happens to be on the boat. And as they come down the gangplank, there's like billions of reporters and cameras and flashes, and everybody's filming, you know, the movie star coming off. And then as they finally come up out of third-class steerage and come down the gangplank, there's nobody there to greet them. There's nobody there to congratulate them or welcome them home from 40 years on the mission field, and the husband looks over at his wife and he goes, don't worry, hon, we're not home yet. What does he mean? Because there's coming a day where we're gonna walk down that gangplank into the presence of Christ and all the angels in heaven just cheering. Yay, you're here. That's what we live for. And that is what God has promised us. And that is what Jesus has secured for us in his life and death and resurrection. And that's why it is so important for us to remember who we are. To remember who we really are. And that's the last part. It's so important to remember who we really are. Whenever we get confused 
about what's truly beautiful, God reminds us about who we really are. Now, if you're reading, you know, if you're following along, and maybe you've noticed this, you know, with with James, (laughs) whenever you think you're in the clear and James has just dropped this beautiful, like, you know, full Christ-centered bomb out on the table, all of a sudden he kind of changes course and says something crazy, and you're like, what? What are you talking about, James? (laughs) So he shifts course, and then there at the end he's like, so, speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, for mercy triumphs over judgment. And you're like, whoa, gosh, man, James, didn't you read your Burkhoff theology book, brother? (sighs) Why do you got to go and do that? Well, listen, James is primarily, look at the book of James has been trouble for a lot of people because James is primarily concerned with helping to usher Christians who are in Christ into the joy of the Lord by helping them to live in, uh, in, in, in the principles of love. That's what he's really all about. And that's what he's on the forefront with. He's not super concerned with, with, uh, with dropping the doctrine of justification on every, you know, on every paragraph, but it's always in the background. It's what he's operating off, right? And that's not to say that we should do the same all the time. We should recognize what James's purposes are, what the genre of the book is. It's really New Testament wisdom literature. Since you have been saved by this great mercy, here's how you can act in accordance with who you are so that you can be joyful and bring joy and light to the world. So what is he saying when he says all that crazy stuff? In order to get what he's saying, let's first, let's review. Let's back up a little bit and remind ourselves what James has already said, okay? First, what did he say? First sermon, James says uh, in it that we are, the reason that we have, uh, believe, the reason that we have come to faith is because we have been reborn by the will of God, by the will and power of God for his good pleasure through the gospel, Right, God has, it is God's power and God's will that has brought us forth out of death and into life. And God has chosen us and brought us into life by the power of his word. And then he said, last sermon, we talked about how uh, James says that we, we can take great solace in understanding that we have received the implanted word. And then we talked about how that word meant it's something that has been permanently established in us as a foundation, which then we build upon, perfectly in agreement with what the Apostle Paul says. And here, in this passage, James just got done saying that those, you know, those who love God are the ones that God has chosen to be rich in faith and heirs, really co-heirs with Christ of the new creation. We are destined for glory. We are being renewed in the beauty of Christ, even as we speak, and that's our reality. And then he reminds us how the law works. What does he say? You know, he says, you know, if you break one law, uh, you've broken all of it. You break one law, you're a lawbreaker, you've broken all of it, right? He's saying in no uncertain terms, the law is not a sliding scale, the law is not a percentage, 
Uh, there's no, it's not, if my good works outweigh my bad at the end of the day, I will go to heaven. It has nothing to do with that. What the law says is that we must be perfect. We must be morally perfect every day of our life without even one failure. That's the standard. That's the standard of the law. That's James is like laying that out. What's he saying? Is he saying, man, you know, you read that and you're kind of tempted to think, man, he's saying I better get back in there and really crush it because... That's not what he's saying. He's saying you who are about to be judged by the law of liberty are going to be crushed by it. That's the only option. If you sinned at all, you are a lawbreaker. And so what is the, if that's true, if we are all going to be crushed under the judgment of the law, what is the only possibility to triumph over it? Well, he says, mercy. Whose mercy? God's mercy. God's mercy. God's mercy to you in Christ. And by his blood, he has purchased for us freedom from the hideous anti-beauty of the world. Not to be free to continue in our sin, but to be free, to be free from sin, right? And then at the very end, the very last sentence is, don't miss this. He puts a, it's put a joyful exclamation mark at the end at the very last sentence where he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. So what is he saying? He's like, look, since your judgment has been overcome by the mercy of God in Christ, be merciful to others, no matter what they look like, no matter what your preconceived ideas of them may be, no matter if being merciful to them might hurt your own worldly aspirations of power and world domination. Mercy is the opposite of discrimination. And you know, it's, he's not saying anything that Jesus didn't say. Jesus taught a whole parable on this. The whole the parable, it's called the parable of the wicked servant, right? What happens? There's this dude who's in debt jail. He owes the king 50,000 talents, right? It's like a, it's like a billion dollars. And he comes before the king and says, oh, king, give me a couple more weeks and I'll, or just give me a little more time and I'll pay it off, right? He's like the typical sinner, the typical person who's like, oh, God, give me, you know, maybe if more time I'll do some more good works and then I'll like balance the scale and I'll be able to pay this off. And, and the point is that you can't, you can't pay off a billion dollars in debt. It's just not even possible. He's just overwhelmed in his debt. In the way we are overwhelmed in our sin, there's no way you can overcome it. No way. Even if you had all the time in the world, you would never be able to overcome it. And what happens? What does the king do? He forgives his debt and says, go on your way. And so what does that guy do? Guy goes, fine. First, he just runs right out of jail and finds his homie who owns him 50 bucks. He's like, oh man, didn't I front you back in the day? You got to pay up, bro. 50 bucks. And the guy's like, oh, give me a little bit of time to pay it back. And he goes, no, pay me now. And he throws him in prison. And so the king calls the guy back and he says, what did you do? It's like, are you completely unaware of the amount of mercy that you just received? That you can't extend a little bit of mercy to your, to your brother? And then the king dispatches with that guy. It's kind of scary, right? 
Well, see, what's he, what the point of the story is that the guy, by his actions, he proves that he has no clue what mercy and what grace is. He has no clue what the gospel really is. He could care less. He just got a free get out of jail guard. Now he's going to go and advance his own earthly kingdom and world domination, right? And James is saying the same thing to us. He's saying, because the moral of that story is for us, and in context with what James is saying, it's not... Because of the mercy we received in Christ, we should look strikingly different than the world does. We should value things that are different than the world values. And when you're in the world and you're on top of your game, those things may seem totally foolish and ridiculous. They did to me. But when you get to that spot in life when you need to know if there is a God and who he really is, more than you want to tell him who he should be, the things that we value have to be the things of, of, of eternal value. They have to be the mirror of forgiveness and, and of, of the character of God, of forgiveness and mercy and grace and love and self-sacrifice and, uh, and, and, and being joyful about pouring ourselves out to extend mercy to the poor, to the disenfranchised all around us because we are so overwhelmed with the mercy that we've been shown in Christ, right? And so that's kind of the charge at the end. James isn't contradicting Paul or any of that stuff. He's saying, you have received all these things in Jesus. And the call to us is then to be a church. Imagine if we were, imagine if the church, when you, if you stop somebody on the street and you said, excuse me, excuse me, ma'am, what do you think about the Christian church? What do you think, what do most people say? They can give you a really clear line-by-line -line version of what it is we're against. But rarely you're going to find somebody and give you a line-by-line -line what we are for. What if people were, what if we lived in such a way that people's impression of the church was, well, I don't agree with what they believe, and especially on some things, I think it's super cracked out, but they're merciful and they, they love people, and, um, and I see them, they're doing a lot of good, and I'm glad they're here. That's what he's calling us to do. Why? Because then we have opportunities to share the gospel with people and advance the kingdom and bring souls in from the hideous anti-beauty of the world and into who God considers the beautiful people to truly be. Amen? That's prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, which is truly beautiful. We thank you that it reveals to us that you are, in fact, that Jesus is the face of what is truly beautiful in the world, in the universe. And not only that, but that you are sharing that with us. That the Lord Jesus shares, is sharing his life with us. And that you are recreating us. Lord, you are scraping off all the old cruddy paint and dirt and washing us with the word and your spirit and bringing out the vibrancy of color that you intended the human race to display as the pinnacle of your creation. 
So we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see what the world is all about, not so that we would hate them or circle the wagons or become, uh, you know, adversaries of the world, but so that we could walk in and among it free from the snares as people who truly have the gift of life and beauty uh, to put, uh, and so that we might be your agents, the spearhead of your ever-advancing creation. Let me pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all uh, stand and respond to that.